conflict between faith and science? And maybe this is a question that you have wrestled with. Uh, and if you haven't, maybe your own kids have wrestled with it, or maybe your grandkids have wrestled with it. This is a question that when it gets asked, can sometimes cause people to walk away from the faith. And so we wanted to talk about this uh, today. This is a question that I myself wrestled with. You know, I grew up in the church. Um, and there just this, there was this subtle, it wasn't like taught necessarily from the, the podium, <laughs> from the pulpit, um, but at times through certain curriculum and stuff, um, it was just taught that there was a conflict between faith and science, that you either accepted the Bible uh, or you accepted science, but you couldn't accept both as being equally true. And a lot of times we were also told along with that, that scientists were a bunch of angry atheists that were set out to disprove God, disprove the existence of God. And so I wrestled with that for a while, uh, especially once I got to college and I heard um, a professor make a really convincing case for the theory of evolution. And so I'm like, hmm, what do I do with this? Because I believe that the Bible is true, that it is God's word to us today. I also believe that science has truth for us today. So in that moment, I decided that I would just become uh, an agnostic of sorts when it came to that idea of faith and science, specifically faith and evolution. And so I just chose not to really think about it uh, until one day I started working in a laboratory uh, with other scientists. Um, not that I'm like a scientist, but I helped on people's PhD research. And um, they were actually really nice people. They weren't these angry atheists set out to disprove the Christian faith, but rather they were just very curious people uh, and very nice people and actually quite interested in the Christian faith. And so I began at that point to kind of look again at, at this, this discussion. Yeah, I think kind of what you said there, like that, uh, I had a similar experience, uh, not that I worked in the sciences at all and had that part of the experience, but just the, the growing up kind of experience that uh, there's a conflict between faith and science, and not only is there a conflict, but that they're, they're kind of enemies. Um, and those in the scientific community or in the educational community were often painted as very, very bad and, and set out to, uh, to destroy faith. And that's, it's a strange phenomenon because that, that almost seems like that's, uh, that's taken for granted. Like that's just a given that faith and science don't get along. And like, depending on who you talk to and what circles you run in, some people like vehemently that science is out to undermine and to disprove God. That's actually a pretty modern phenomenon um, and something that science can't actually do. So... Right, because science is designed to measure the physical world, uh, to, to help us to understand what we can see, what we can taste, what we can basically explore with our five senses. Um, it cannot measure those things that are outside the physical world. So when it comes to the existence of God, God would be metaphysical or supernatural. And so that stands outside the natural realm that science is designed to measure. And so when it comes to trying to use science to disprove the existence of God, you're not actually doing science if you're trying to use science and the, the scientific method uh, to disprove God. Instead, you're doing philosophy um, and, and metaphysical you know, philosophy at that. Uh, so you're not actually doing good science, although the, there are some people that you know, try to do that, uh, and you've probably heard of some of the famous names, but um, they're not actually doing science. Yeah, not only, and I think it's important to note, because I think we see the extreme on the Christian side as well. Not only can science not disprove God, but science also can't 
prove God either. Um, there's no scientific discovery that we can make that goes, see, exactly, like, 100% irrefutable evidence now for God. Um, there used to be a billboard uh, that <laughs> I would see that had a picture of, like, a, a tree frog, and it says, there is evidence for God. And I'm like, that looks like evidence for a frog, but not necessarily evidence for God. Um, yeah, science can't disprove or prove the existence of God because they're two separate arenas. There is an Old Testament scholar, his name's John Walton, he's done a lot of work, obviously in Old Testament, but specifically when we start talking about some of the origin accounts, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 specifically. Um, but he talks about, you know, oftentimes we think of, of um, the areas of life, specifically as we talk about science and faith, as like pieces of a pie. And the more we discover and, you know, the bigger the, the science slice of the pie gets, the smaller the God piece gets. There's less that we, you know, there's less mystery. There's less that we don't know. And so the God piece of pie is getting smaller and smaller until the science piece takes up the whole pie and now God doesn't exist. There's no more God in the pie. Um, and he, he's like, he makes the point, I thought this was a great um, illustration, that it's actually not that way. It's not a piece of a pie. It's, like it's more like a layered cake. That one of the layers is entirely the layer of, of science. But then there's another layer on top of it that is entirely the layer of God and faith. Uh, and as you said, like, science is only what we can see in the, in the touch and feel and experiment on in the natural world, and God exists outside of nature. So by the very definition of what science is, something to study the natural world, and the very definition of what God is, supernatural, neither can, you know, there's not a conflict there. There can't be a conflict there. Right. You see, Christians believe that God has given us his word, uh, you know, the Bible, scriptures, but also he has revealed himself to us in his world. So we have God's word and God's world. And both tell us things about God, about our creator. Um, and, and Christians actually recognize this, that in fact, some of the first scientists uh, that gave way to the scientific revolution actually Christian theologians. I think it's Newton that actually has written more on theology than he has on science, but everybody knows him for his science. Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton. Not to be confused with Sir Elton John. Sir Isaac Newton. They are both knights. I think that's what that means, right? You've been knighted? Yes, I, I think know. so. Somebody can correct <laughs> us on that. Yeah, I, I, and that's the thing that's really interesting. This, it, you know, we get so caught up in our current moment that we think something's always been this way, that faith and science have always been at odds. It's a very modern phenomenon. Uh, within like the last mostly 100 to 150 years, um, that throughout the course of history, much scientific discovery has been made by committed followers of Jesus. Um, so Einstein, Einstein was not a Christian. Um, he would have probably considered himself to be a deist. He knew that there was something else out there that was beyond the material world, but not a Christian. But he had three scientific heroes. Um, and he actually had pictures of these guys in his study. And they were like his scientific heroes. They were Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, um, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell. Um, you've heard, probably heard of Isaac Newton, gravity, and, and those kind of things. Um, Faraday, maybe, the Faraday principle, I've kind of heard of that. I don't know what it's for people who are way smarter than me. <laughs> and uh, Maxwell, I don't remember what he did, but like major scientific minds that shaped modern science. And Einstein looked up to these guys, and all three of them were Christians and committed to their faith. Uh, another guy, his name's Lord Kelvin, 
just, just awesome. Like, man, we don't have names like we used to have, you know? Lord Kelvin. Uh, but if Kelvin sounds familiar, that's because one of the ways that we measure temperature is now in Kelvin. It's named after him. Um, and he was actually one of the first committed follower of Jesus, and he was one of the first scientists to calculate the age of the earth in millions of years rather than thousands. Um, he, I think he died in like 1907, so not that long ago. Um, and yeah, follower of Jesus, and he stumbles across this thing and goes, oh, the earth is older than just a few thousand years, and he saw no conflict between um, his faith and that science. Other names, people like uh, Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, uh, Gregor Mendel for um, uh, like uh, genes. The uh, inheritability. Inheritability. Yeah. Does anybody remember doing the um, Punnett Squares Punnett Squares in middle school or high school? You remember what that is? You had like the little graph, little, little box, four quadrants. Big Y, little Y, and like, what's little the, Y, little Y. What's the chance that you're going to have brown eyes? What's the chance that you're going to have red hair? That, that's what mine was. Um, and yeah, this, is, this was Gregor Mendel, and he was like a monk, and he started studying some peas. Um, committed, again, committed Christian follower of Jesus, dedicated to science, and so this kind of conflict, it may seem really old for us because we get very stuck in our moment, but it is very much a modern thing. 100 to 150 years of seeming, it's not actual, but seeming conflict versus, uh, you know, 2,000 years of church history that, that hasn't been a conflict. Right, and it, along with that, it's interesting, you know, that this is a conflict in the United States. If you go to pretty much the rest of the world, there is no conflict between faith and science, especially the Catholic world. They've made their peace with science a long time ago. And for us, we're still talking about it and debating. Um, but really, this is a, a conflict since 1859 when Charles Darwin published his On the Origin of Species, which I always encourage, if you're a Christian, I think every Christian should read The Origin of Species to see what Darwin actually said versus what Christians say Darwin has said. And every time Paul says that, I make fun of him and say, because he actually read it, or he listened to it. I listened to it. I didn't have the time to read it. And how long of an audiobook is this? It's a 21-hour audiobook. So anybody needs some good, like, bedtime reading, okay? It's actually not that boring. <laughs> there's you know, those parts that are really dry, but for the most part, it's actually, if you're interested in science and the natural world. Says the guy that works with plants for a living. And bugs. <laughs> and bugs, yeah. yeah. You're like, this is awesome. This is great. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I, I, I wrecked your train of you thought. Did. I'm sorry. So, so Darwin, <laughs> 1859, published On the Origin of Species. And that's when Christians began to think, well, if somehow we just evolved, then that perhaps eliminates the need for God. In fact, there were uh, non-Christians that kind of tried to make theory say that. Darwin mm -hmm. himself never said that. Right. Um, and so then you began to, to have all these um, kind of pseudosciences, try to use science then to prove God. Um, that brings up us up to about 1920 with the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yeah, let me just say too, like you said that there were some groups with the, um, the origin of species that within Christianity pushed back against that, but even then it wasn't everyone. In fact, one of Darwin's closest friends and um, like colleagues was a guy by the name of Asa Gray, uh, and he was a Harvard professor, and him and Darwin, there's over like 300 correspondence between the two of them, and Asa Gray is a committed follower of Jesus, uh, and many of his ideas contributed to the origin of species, um, and he came to the conclusion that says like it just it blew his mind basically even more of who God was. Um, and so there is not necessarily an inherent conflict, but it was a matter of how it was perceived. Right. In fact, before the origin of species, uh, a lot of Christian geologists actually dated rocks and fossils and determined them to be millions of years old. Again, it wasn't until the origin of species came about that 
then it's like, okay, we have to shift our narrative a little bit and say that the Earth is now six to 10,000 years old. Right. Um, and so then, then you, you got to the point of the Scopes Monkey Trial. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial, but this is where a lot of the um, conflict comes from, not necessarily this trial, but things that came out of it. Uh, very much kind of a culture war mindset where it's us versus them, it's the good guys, it's the bad guys. Um, so at, at the turn of the 20th century, there was what was called the, the modernist fundamentalist divide. Um, and, and so like the fundamentalist Christians kind of said, we are going to take uh, God's word, um, this is not a good word, but literally, meaning here's how we read it in our current language with our current ideas of what language is and how we view the world, and we're going to take it at face value. Um, and so then in the 1920s, there was what's called the Scopes Monkey Trial. It was in uh, a small town in Tennessee where there was a lawsuit brought up because evolution was being taught in the schools. Uh, and so this was big news. This was national news. News crews flew down there. They had to build like an airfield in this small town so they could fly their, um, their, their footage in, you know, d every day because there wasn't like, you know, internet and stuff. Um, and William Jennings Bryan was one of the, I think, one of the prosecutors. And he was a big shot um, on the national scene. He was a, a politician as well, actually ran, um, I think, as, as the Democrat for uh, the, pres the president of the United States a couple times. He never won. But he was also a fundamentalist Christian. And they flipped the trial around and put him on the stand. And the person questioned him on his faith and made him to see, seem kind of like uh, backwards, um, simple. You know, do you really believe in miracles? Do you really believe in a literal six-day creation, and, and so this gets all over the country, and Christians kind of get poked fun at a little bit, that fundamentalist crowd, uh, and so from that point forward, there begins to be this growing divide between uh, kind of Christians, especially fundamentalist Christians, and well, the scientific community, the kind of educational elites, they don't like us, they're our enemy, uh, and really, again, that, that divide just continues to widen and widen and widen to where it gets to the point where now where it's anything that comes out of science Christians kind of see with like, can't trust it, don't believe it, um, and it's very much been perpetuated by the culture war stuff, which is, as Pastor Paul said, you don't see this as much as, a, as an issue in other countries. This is very much an American thing, um, and we see that spill over into other areas. So obviously one of the big ones is we're going to kind of unpack a little bit of, of the early chapters of Genesis, you know, those origin stories, so evolution becomes something that, that uh, Christians take issue against. Um, things like climate science, and again, you can have different views on this, but much of the default position of Christians is hostile before even looking at anything because of this long history. So evolution, climate science, things like vaccines and medicine and those kind of things, um, which I, I still find interesting because like we don't trust science in certain areas, yet when it comes to the phones in our pockets, when it comes to going to the doctor, we're like, yep, I'm all for science. Um, so it's this weird mixed bag, but that's where a lot of that hostility comes from. Uh, and so we're talking about 100 years ago is where it really started picking up. Um, we're going back to Darwin about 150 years. Because the, the idea was, okay, I have my English Bible, and therefore if I can read it, I should be able to understand it. Uh, in the l literally what it's saying. Yeah. So if it says God made the world in six days, well, it says it, that settles it. I'm not going to question it. I believe it. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the, the challenge comes in then whenever we read scripture, you know, we import so much of our modern understanding of 
everything of our society, of how the world works. And we read that into the text of scripture. And when it comes to the origin debate um, and, and science, we do the same thing. We go to, especially Genesis, and we expect it to be a scientific textbook telling us exactly yes. how God did everything. But I love what John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar, what he says. He says, if we're going to read the Bible literally, then that means we need to read it in the original language. We need to read it with the cultural context in our mind and try to understand how the first audience would have understood it. That's how we read it literally. Yeah. Uh, he also says that we need to read it literarily uh, and not literally. Uh, literarily meaning understanding what kind of genre uh, the, the text that we're looking at is. Yeah. Um, it's just interesting. Like even our English word literal does not give good meaning for that. We're like, well, I'm going to read this literally. Well, what does literally even mean? Because it's interesting that in English we, we use the word literal to refer to things that aren't literally literal. Like I'm literally starving to death right now. Like, well, no, you're not. <laughs> um, so like, what does literal mean? And as Paul was saying, it's like, we got to get to the heart of what did the original author think about this, not what ideas are we importing into it. Um, because even throughout church history, like very, very early um, in church history, we're talking within a few hundred years of the resurrection, there were different views on Genesis. Um, Origen was a third century, so we're talking, uh, he lived at the end of the uh, 100s AD, into the 200s AD. A third century philosopher, theologian who lived in Alexandria, did a lot of work in the areas of Christianity and, and produced some written works that are still referenced today. Uh, and he, he opposed the idea of the creation account being as interpreted as literal historical account of how God created the world. And he wasn't the only one, and that was actually a popular position within the early church. So a couple hundred years after Jesus, no one is reading that as, uh, as a literal account, or virtually no one. Also, St. Augustine, he was a bishop in North Africa in the early 5th century, so early 400s. Uh, he produced a lot of influential works that maybe you've heard of, Confessions, City of God. Confessions, it was written in the 300s, is actually a really good read. <laughs> it is, like it's not dry. Like um, <laughs> Augustine, just his life and yeah. what he wanted to do. Oh yeah, because he he's a crazy man before yeah, he met Jesus. He, uh, <laughs> and he tells all that, and it's just really good. But he also writes a work called The Literal Meaning of Genesis, um, and he kind of comes at this conclusion that the first two chapters were written to suit the understanding of the people at the time that it was written, um, that it's, it's a simpler allegorical telling of the story, uh, and he also believed that God created the world with the capacity for the world to develop. Um, and so that's not like Augustine is saying, evolution is true, but he doesn't slam the door on that. Obviously, it was 1,500 years before that was ever a theory. Um, so, so not that that should form our opinion on things, but I think sometimes we think that the anti-science perspective is what the church has always held, and it just hasn't been the case. That's right. Um, so let's dive into the text now, into Genesis chapter 1. Um, and we're going to try to read this from a literary perspective and not a literal uh, perspective. Literal being, you know, trying to read it plain, plain Jane English. Plain Jane. Um, so in Genesis chapter 1, this is what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, just to pause right there. In the beginning, God, so it's not like a specific time, but the author's like, you know, just way back when, when God made everything. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. Um, and, and we have a problem here because the, the earth is existing already. So if we're going to read this literally, well, when did God create 
because the Earth is already there. Right, does it count stars? It's like there's some sort of unformed, I don't know, it's there, it's Earth, it's something. Yeah, um, and verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called, then the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters and called them seas, and God saw that it was good. So just pause right there. Um, there's water. It doesn't say when God created the water. It's just, hey, just here's there. water. It's, it's here. Um, let me do some stuff with it. Uh, verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land to bear fruit and seed within it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in, according, in accordance to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so if you've been tracking along and just kind of paying attention to what God has been doing, you notice that he created light day and night and he creates plants, but he hasn't yet created sun and moon. And mm -hmm. if this is literally how God did it, that poses a problem for us. Right. And how do you like, how do you create light? I mean, even today, we don't even really know what light is. Like, what is light? It's energy, it's a photon. It's, it's a wave, and it's, it's a particle. It's a wave, it's a particle. Um, and and it, it actually says he separated light from darkness. Well, what does that look like? How do you separate light and darkness? It's just this, again, it's, 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 it's imagery that we're not quite familiar with in our modern sensibilities. Uh, verse 14, and God said, let there be light in the night, or in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that is the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, the moon. And he also made the stars, and God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from dark. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then God goes on to create the, the sea creatures and the birds and the land creatures on the fifth day. Uh, and God creates the livestock on the sixth day. Uh, and then verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Um, and so God here is giving mankind uh, kind of some of his authority to rule over, bring potential um, and order out of what's been unordered still. Um, and God saw that all that he made was good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Yeah, and then <clears throat> seventh day he rests, and that's the end of Genesis 1, slightly into Genesis 2 of the creation account. Um, one of the creation accounts, 
actually, because the interesting thing is, as we read there about um, him creating mankind, it's like, well, wait, where's the part about, uh, I thought, you know, forming Adam from the dust and taking a rib, and that's actually in Genesis 2, um, and there's another kind of creation account in Genesis 2, and it doesn't line up exactly with the days of Genesis 1, and so there's another issue if we're just going to say, hey, face value, this is exactly the mechanism through which God did things, we have an issue within the text, um, and so either uh, it's wrong or we've got to do some, jump through some uh, interpretive hoops to make them line up or the original author is trying to do something different. That's right, and the original author had no category for our modern understanding of science. That's you know, we, we go to this, uh, like Tim Mackey says, who's uh, the founder of Bible Project, he says we, we look at the Bible, especially Genesis, like it's security camera footage of what actually happened. Uh, but it's not actually security camera footage. The, the original author had no idea of science, of our modern understanding of science. They knew uh, that God created, that was just assumed. Everybody knew that God or their God created everything. Um, they weren't concerned with how he did it. Rather, they were concerned with, okay, what's its function? What's its purpose? Um, because if Genesis is telling us how God created things, from a ancient Near Eastern perspective, it's an account of functional origins. So God creates things, and then he gives it its function, its purpose. Uh, for them, something, if it existed, but it didn't have a purpose yet, it didn't really exist. It didn't have uh, a purpose until it was given, or it didn't, it didn't have existence until it was given a purpose. Yeah, that's a major difference between how we think of things in the modern world. We think this cup exists because I can hold it, I can touch it, it's a thing. In the ancient Near East, which is the, the culture that Israel was in, um, this cup wouldn't exist in their mind unless it had a purpose, a function, unless it did something. And that's very reflective in the language through Genesis 1. If you read like what God is doing, there's very little actual like physical making of things that like when we think create. There's lots of gathering and separating and, and calling out and things producing. It's this picture of God bringing function and order to an unordered, chaotic uh, world. You know, that, that beginning picture of the earth being formless and empty, it's the little Hebrew like rhyming phrase, tohu vavohu. It's like a wild wasteland. There is no function or order to the creation. And then enters God's spirit and he brings function and order and beauty out of this chaos. Um, and that really is the picture that the, the author of Genesis wants us to see, that God is the God that brings order and beauty out of chaos, that, that makes us a place for human flourishing. And as you said, for an ancient reader, it never would have crossed their mind, well, how'd you do that? Because it, it, didn't, it didn't matter to them. It's just like, no, it's here, and God has given it order. Right, and so one of the things that we keep talking about is order and non-order. Uh, so we see God bringing order out of the chaos, so that's one category. Then you see non-order, which would be kind of what was chaotic before God, um, you know, brought order. So uh, if you continue to read on, you know, God makes the Garden of Eden, puts Adam and Eve there, that would be a highly ordered space, but then outside of the garden is considered non-order. So Adam and Eve were supposed to go out of the garden and continue to bring the order of Eden to the rest of creation. Right, that's this beautiful picture then of part of what it means to be made in the image of God is for him to, to look at human beings and saying, okay, here's what I've created, this beautiful ordered space. Out there, it's nothing but raw potential still. Now you go and rule and reign in my image and bring the beauty and the flourishing. 
And then we have one more category, it's disorder. And yeah. this is a lot of times what we bring instead of order, is we unleash disorder. If you um, read about the serpent in, in Genesis chapter three, that's a picture of a chaos monster that also brings disorder. These little creatures in ancient uh, creation accounts that, yeah, they just go around and bring back chaos into the creation. Yeah. And so they, like, they have a very different way of viewing the world. So as it, as it relates to our modern um, concepts of faith and science, now there, there are other objections and other texts that people may ha see problematic as it relates to science, but I think a lot of it comes back to this origin accounts because if the origin is off, then none of the other science can be trusted. Or if this origin account, if, if evolution or any other different scientific view is true, then we have to just get rid of this whole thing. None of it works. Um, but that's not what the text is doing. Our Bibles are not science textbooks. Um, they're not talking necessarily about how did God create the physical world, but who is this God? What kind of world is this? Uh, where do we find ourselves? Right, the Bible tells one unified story that leads to Jesus, yes. not one unified story that tells us how science and the world works. And so then it's important to know that there, is there a conflict bef between faith and science? No, there can't be. Um, so, you know, if you've got, if you yourself are struggling with this question, or if you've got kids or, or grandkids that are struggling with this question, um, that's a lot of information, and you can go so deep down this rabbit hole, and you can, I mean, if you want to talk to us, we can get you lots and lots of resources, but there is no conflict. You know, you if you hold to a rigid view that there's only one way of interpreting science and I have to be able to find that science in this Bible and all it takes is one college biology class to be like, sorry, your faith doesn't exist anymore. Um, I love what uh, St. Augustine said as it relates to these kind, of, these kind of matters that are still up in the air. So he said this, again, this is in the early 400s AD. Uh, and if we would just get a hold of this idea, I think it would help us a lot. He says, in matters so obscure and far beyond our vision, we, uh, we find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith that we've received. Uh, so in other words, there's, there's things about our world, there's things we read in Scripture that we can read and interpret in different ways. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. In other words, we shouldn't so closely tie our faith to one particular view that if someday that view gets undermined, our faith comes tumbling down. And so as we talk about science, we shouldn't so tie our faith to young earth creationism, old earth creationism, evolutionary uh, thought, um, evolutionary creationism. Don't so tie your faith to any one of those things where it says this is true, that if someday we, science progresses further, there's a discovery made that says that's not true, your faith comes tumbling down. Um, undermines this position, we too fall with it. And then he says that would be to battle not for the teaching of Holy Scripture, but for our own wishing its teaching to conform to ours, whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred scripture. Um, scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Uh, these uh, creation accounts or these origin accounts were thought of very differently to the people that wrote them and to the people that first received them. And we gotta try to, to get into their heads. No matter what science ever discovers, it is never going to be in conflict with God because God sits outside of the natural world. So I would just encourage you to, um, to have grace, uh, whatever perspective you land in, to do some research, to look at the evidence. Francis Collins, one of the 
best scientists in our world today, who is uh, the head of the Human Genome Project, mapping the, I think, two billion uh, letters in the human genome, uh, and also now head of the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. um, grew up an atheist and an agnostic, and it wasn't until he became a doctor and was at the bedside of a patient that he realized that he had drawn conclusions, but he didn't actually look at the evidence. And so when he started to look at the evidence for Christianity and for faith, he became a follower of Jesus. So don't draw blind conclusions uh, without diving into the evidence first. Yep. And, that's, and, and just to say, like, don't hear us promoting any particular kind of science. Um, you can land on any of the kind of conclusions. If you're a young Earth creationist, an old Earth creationist, an evolutionary creationist, or, or anything in between, um, that's fine if you find evidence for those different things, but you won't find evidence that, that definitively points to any one of those things here. All right, well, we got a question. Um, person said, to complicate things more, we have politicized <laughs> both faith and science. How do we effectively isolate politics from the science slash faith conversation without it blowing up into an argument? Uh -huh. Oh, we need an answer for that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, man, that's not just an issue with faith and science. That seems like an issue with everything today is everything is politicized. Um, I think, there, okay, th so there's, I hope you have a better answer than I do. Uh, <laughs> a little pressure. It requires something that every area of life requires that we're not good at anymore, and that is this thing we don't even talk about much anymore, but scripture talks about it often called discernment. And that discernment is a process of sifting through information rather than just coming to like a quick conclusion. Um, and so I think part of that process is, I mean, as, as a follower of Jesus, that, that begins with being anchored in who Jesus is, what he's done, anchored in scripture, anchored in prayer through the process, and then from there going out and looking at different arguments, whether that's in science or any other area of life, and not, and actually reading multiple um, positions. Because I think one of the, it's really easy to get into our echo chambers today um, and just say, oh, here's, here's one I like, I'm gonna attach to that one, um, rather than maybe looking at different perspectives. That's all I got. I would add, um, you know, if possible, get to know somebody that's involved in the sciences um, and make it personal. Because so often, you know, we politicize science and, and faith, but we don't actually know anybody that's actually like in the heart of the issue. So it becomes really easy to just lump them into the other, into the enemy. Um, so yeah, do the hard work, get to know somebody, have conversations and be willing to listen. Um, be willing to bump up against information that confronts maybe some beliefs that you have that makes you a little bit uncomfortable um, because it's in that tension that, that we learn more about ourselves, we learn more about the other position, uh, and that we grow as human beings. Right, and I mean that points back to your story. You said that when you started working with some people that work in the sciences and realized, oh, these aren't all people who are trying to undermine God and tear Christianity apart, but they're actual people with stories that are good people. So. That's right. I think that's it? That's it. All right, let's pray. To close things out, why don't, why don't we pray? <laughs> we never talked about who's praying to close. All right, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you that you uh, give us wisdom and that you, you say that if anyone lacks wisdom, to just ask and you will grant that request. Uh, so Lord, we ask for more wisdom this day, uh, to have more discernment. Lord, to know um, 
Lord, what, what path we should take. Um, Lord, would you give us grace uh, in the, these non-essentials? Uh, while it's an interesting conversation, it, it really doesn't affect the centrality of your death, burial, and resurrection. So may we have grace uh, in these other areas. Lord, whenever we go out of here today, would you give us ears to hear uh, and hearts that are soft uh, to, to show your grace and your compassion to others. In your name I pray.